When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording belatedly, groggily, on Monday, <laughs> June 14th, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. We are coming to you after a tech glitch on Friday and uh, 48 hours of... We have to, we're going to record the thing again and get it live to tape and do all the things all over again. So we're... Um, Shining it on, gussing it up, uh, all the other uh, homespun colloquialisms for yeah, <laughs> trying to muster is. a little bit of energy for the same topics we just talked about. <laughs> the Monday morning mulligan is a real particular yeah. vibe. Yeah, I mean, we we were thinking like, okay, there's some. It's weird. We do this live to tape, right? So it's in a way, if it was an annotated one where it's scripted, it's easier to do because it's already out there and you're sort of performing it, right? There's yeah. something about these live to tape ones where. We have just a bunch of links. We haven't talked about what we're going to talk about related to these links. And so we're spontaneously doing it, right? And that's kind of the, the, the shtick that we do. And having to do it over again is way out of scale with how actually hard it is yeah. compared to how how hard it feels to do. Again, <laughs> it doesn't. It's it's because the the regular show is just usually us processing things together live like right. in real time and when we've had the conversation already and like i know what interesting question you asked about that thing like mm -hmm. maybe that has reshaped my thinking on it or you know like what my take was on something it's i don't think we've ever successfully just like reproduced the conversation that we no. had the first time around sometimes pieces shift around but it is um much harder it's just it's much harder and just a completely different task to like have the same conversation or yep. to talk about the same things a second time when it's it's not fresh and we do know where like there's there are no surprises here unless you've evolved your take on one of these well i spent things most of the, the weekend kind of re going back over my priors about the world and books and oh, reading yeah. so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a whole new man what you're doing today, for right? a whole 48 yeah. hours i mean that's pretty efficient i Jeff. try to do every week or so whole new man you know as you've experienced over time um anyway uh so we're back and we're happy to be here though uh a little a little sh a little bit of a f feeling our way through what's uh, interesting and exciting about now uh, before we dive in we'll take a, a sponsor break to get going today's episode is brought to you by song of the silks realms by judy eyelid Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased increasingly more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke and 
Who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Um programming note tomorrow tomorrow are we recording tomorrow for we're our recording best today books today no no i know we're recording today our next Welcome show to monday our next show which is our last bonus episode of the season our favorite read of 2021 we're recording it this week it'll release next wednesday um so looking forward to that i did finish the books i wanted to finish over the weekend so i'm very happy about that I might be, we had said on Friday that we we're going to pick four, uh, five, mm-hmm. and then maybe some honorable mentions. I might only have four. I don't need to recommend okay. five. I only got four I think I feel really, really good about right now. For my, my, my I want to hold these. I want to save these. Um, one thing we did talk about last week, which I think bears repeating here or refining a little bit here, is I'm not at least trying to say these are the best books that I read this year. Certainly not the best books are out this year because I've read a lot, but certainly can't be. Uh, comprehensive in that way. I'm not even saying they're my favorite books of the year. I'm saying these are the books that if I could only save four of the book, four of the reading experiences I had that I want to make sure I had again, you know, if I rewound it and said, okay, you can't repeat anything except these four, what are you picking? So I think maybe five, we'll see. I'm going back and forth, but, um, and then a couple of honorable mentions for particular moments or things that are noted about other reads we did there. So that's coming up uh, a little bit later. Um, and, and because we're influencers now, I'm sure all the books that we pick will immediately be run out and bought and read or listened to by all of 100% of our readers, our listeners, pardon me, will go out and buy all these things because we are influencers now, Rebecca. We are. I mean, you can go out and buy all of our favorite books of 2021 after everyone finishes reading Gilead and Beloved. That's right. But we have received some exciting, and by some I mean like three, um, exciting emails or Instagram messages from some folks who have in fact picked up a few of our favorite titles after we did that listener poll. So thank you to those of you who mm. have, you know, heartened us that you're maybe paddling this little canoe along with us of getting everyone on board for Marilyn Robinson and Toni Morrison. Um, but we're yeah, we're influencers now. We're going to try not to go mad with power. Um, if you want to join us in our next thing that we're going to read together, 
we are going to be have we I can't remember which episode we talked about I this can't on remember. if it was Friday it was or not. It was the one so, that we actually got in the can do we have to jettison yeah, it do we have to talk about this uh, so we are going to be reading Crying in H Mart uh, together for one of our big books of um, the year shows we're recording that one on June 24th and it will air the final week of June so you have a couple weeks now to pick that up and read it if you want to have done it already by the time the show airs. So I think that'll be Monday the 28th is mm-hmm. when that uh, when that episode will come out. But uh, each quarter, Book Riot Insiders get to help us pick the topic for one of our episodes, and they wanted us to pick a book that was one of the new releases of the year. We picked Crying in H Mart. We love a story about um, food and culture and the reviews. I haven't seen anybody who's read this book who hasn't absolutely loved it. Yeah. So I was going to be reading it this summer anyway. I'm really glad that I'm glad we're going to read it. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. And I, at least for me, it's ineligible for my favorite reads of the year so far because I haven't mm-hmm. read it yet. I'm not done yeah. with it. So um, I have not be, read it yet either. Maybe post hoc be added on to the list there also thank you for the nice notes people wrote about our somebody's daughter experiment Mm. i think we will be trying some more stuff probably not exactly like that but using some embedded audio um from the audiobook since that's something we could get makes for a good segment and then we can talk with more specificity about something that we've all read because we know most people haven't read the stuff we're talking about and i say that non that that one particular one's done sarcastically because especially when it's new release, um, not getting out there quite yet. So maybe if we find a good section of crying in H Mart as we're reading or listening to it, maybe we can find um, a, spe- a specifically revealing vignette or segment of that that might be interesting um, to talk about too. I'd also like to hear what your favorite reads of 2021 have been out there, folks. A podcast at bookride.com. I really just want 2021 releases, though. I mean, I mean if you want to tell me the other stuff. Great. But I'm really, what are the new books people are into? Because one thing we were thinking about and talking about um, as we were thinking about what book to pick and then looking at our own favorite reads of the year, and I think really in anticipation of the summer movie draft too, like what's the book of the year so far? And I, I don't think there there really is one. There's some books that have had hangovers from 2020 that are still selling, Vanishing Half and I think The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue were back half of 2020 picks that have carried over. In terms of new fiction, or even sort of literary nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, things like that, that have become burbled up at all, I'm not really sure there's been anything yet. Though I did, in a little of my trying to figure out where we were, I was looking at Amazon reviews. Because mm. that's, you know, we don't have a BookScan account. BookScan doesn't capture everything. So Amazon review count is a, it's a, it's a flawed proxy but it's the best of what we got, I think, outside of looking at BookScan um, on the regular. And I got to tell you, Project Hail Mary's review <sighs> curve, it's up to like 12,000 reviews now. Oh, I'm so glad. Which is really, it's a really fun book. I think we'll both be talking about that. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if one or, one of both, I would be surprised if one of both of us don't talk about that. And I think there's a, there's a case to be made that that might be the book of the year right now. Um, if you had to pick... I'm not sure if it's a binary. I th- actually, I think there's a binary. There either is or isn't a book of the year, and there doesn't have to be a book of the year every year, if that makes sense. So it doesn't have to be something <laughs> that raises to the level. And we were talking about how, what would we mean by book of the year? We don't mean the best-selling book. We also don't mean the best book, right? There can, there's plenty of years where there's a great literary fiction title or something that becomes an immortal genre read or just becomes a part of sort of the paperback favorites, whatever, that what, for every reason in the moment, though, isn't. You know, it doesn't, it takes a little while for it to catch on for whatever reason. Like, Vanishing Half, weirdly, 
uh, came on at the end of last year. So it was a little late in the season for it to be kind of the book of 2020, mm-hmm. though I think I'd probably still pick it if I, had, if I had to pick one. But I'm not sure it really rose to the level. On the other hand, Crawdads sold plenty of c- copies, but it's not good enough, Rebecca. I don't know what to say. It's, yeah. just not, it's just not. I think Crawdads is a weird outlier in how we think about book of the year. Like mm-hmm. when we, The first time we had this conversation, <laughs> we were talking about how usually the book of the year has... like lives at an intersection of it's in the popular consciousness, it's being recommended really widely, and it has some literary accolades and acclaim going around. So you get your Colson Whiteheads and you get the vanishing half and like a not small percentage of the kinds of books that like Reese Witherspoon is picking and recommending as well that have, you know, what we would think of as like, literary quality capital Mm -hmm. l capital q and crawdads is in that weird zone at least as far as we're concerned where it it made it like really hugely into the popular consciousness and got widely recommended but is not on it is not getting and did not get will not land in the zone of literary accolades wasn't going to be nominated for the national book award um and that I think that just happens sometimes. Yep, that also happened. Does. It happened with Fifty Shades of Grey, where sometimes there's something about a story that like transcends whatever the the typical requirements are for uh-huh. a book to be considered book of the year in that way that is both about popularity and literary bona fides. Um, and yep. I think there are some good contenders. This year, and maybe Project Hail Mary is on the other side of that. Like, I, I think it's it's a super fun, really wonderful reading experience. Bob and I have been listening to it on audio, but like, it's a fun pop sci-fi, yep, and right. it's probably not going to be nominated for big book awards and get those no. l- bits of acclaim. Um, I don't, I can't remember if Andy Weir was even nominated for any of the sci-fi awards, like the the Nebula oh, or the, the Hugo, That's a Hugo great or anything. I don't remember when, that when the Martian came out. Yeah. Um, but I think it lives in a similar kind of zone where it's a great book, really fun. Lots of people love it, but we won't think of it as book of 2021 because right. there's something about book of the year that implies like kind of that Oscar worthiness. Right. And the 50 shades, um, it's kind of the exception that proves the rule, except in this regard, which I think there are books that can punch through mm-hmm. sort of, um, whether or not you you know they may not be the they may, they not be, may not be taught in English courses in the future right that kind of that kind of right. a book but for they they not only are bestsellers but they also pu- punch through the public consciousness in a way where you if you you could have made a Fifty Shades joke when Fifty Shades was hot and people would get it right or mm-hmm. at least understand what we were talking about same with something like Da Vinci Code or Gone Girl or something like that Gone Girl I think is the best example of like a perfect storm of it books for for an it book. Um, but when Da Vinci Code came out and everyone was reading that, you could make a, you could have a Saturday Night Live skit about Da Vinci Code and people will get it. That, by almost definition, makes it um, an it book of the year. So you kind of need two of the three of the triangle. You need sales, public consciousness, or and or you know um, merit, right? Art, mm-hmm. art bona fides. Now it's hard to punch through the public consciousness without the sales. So it's like the sales are like necessary but not sufficient to punch through. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting one as well. And there's so many books. There's so many things for people to do. It used to be, I think popular culture writ large is now, has the same fate that books have largely had, is that there's so much and it's so nichified that 
the ex- it'll be the exception rather than the rule when there's an it movie, it TV show um, mm-hmm. of the year. Even even music um, is a little bit more like books in this regard, as there's so much, and it can become so specialized. But when I was younger, it was pre- sometimes it was pretty obvious what the few handful of movies of the year were, even outside of Oscar nominations and stuff like that. Um, but you need either. I don't think any of the stuff that was nominated for an Oscar this year would you call movie of the year quality was is an unusual year. Whereas like Avengers Endgame, for example, the biggest box office of all time and everyone was talking about it for like six months and it was the culmination of an unprecedented movie machine. Um, so that's a little bit difficult thing to see too. The, you know, the other thing that got me thinking about this over the weekend after we talked the first time is we. I don't think we have any book series that – we're not waiting on – I mean, okay – Rothless Martin. I'm sorry. Like, that is serious shade that I didn't even mean to throw there because no one is actually waiting on. I'm sorry. Well, you should, if you are, you no, shouldn't be. People are waiting, but they also haven't been promised to be this year. So it's not like those are teed up to be 2021 books. Yeah. Well, they're not even being anticipated. I guess they're not being anticipated because we just don't know, right? Right. Well, there's nothing out there that's really. Is there? I mean, what am I missing? Is there a middle of a series somewhere we're waiting on? Like, the YA thing is gone. The YA dystopian thing is gone. Yeah, I don't um, think there is. For an, for sci-fi, like, I guess Jemison has the second half of City We Became, but that's that's not what we're talking about in the public cautionist kind of way. So I'm not sure what, what's, um, what, the, what the most anticipated thing out there might be, though we did say there's a bumper crop of things coming out in the fall, but, like, unless you're, listen, unless you're us or listening to the show, right. you don't know what's coming out in September, yeah, and that's know, the way it goes. I like this trifecta ring two out of the three bells mm-hmm. way of, of thinking about what makes a big book of the year. I think that's yep. a very helpful model. And when we get to our fall books draft, which we're going to go into without consulting each other. That's right. And um, that'll be an interesting way to think about those also. A um, little other wrap up. We missed this when it came around, but we just wanted to mention quickly um, for those of I'm sure most of you have heard if you're listening to this show that Errol Carl passed away. At the age of 91, author of The Very Hunger, Hungry Caterpillar, which talk about an it book of the decades for children's books. Mm-hmm. Like this is, the, the thing that's different about children's books than adult books is you can then be a top 10 bestseller for decades if you make it to the Mount Rushmore of children's books. You know, you're up there with the Seusses of the world and uh, Brown, well, Brown Bear, Brown Bear is also Eric Carle, but the Sandra Boyntons and um, all, all the kinds of books that become... I don't know, part of the experience of buying books for kids over decades and decades. Um, Very Hungry Caterpillar has been out for decades. Um, oh, The Places You Go, which is the best-selling book last week. I was just looking at Publishers Weekly, 50K copies. Um, but you can't get Dr. Seuss books. They all get canceled. So I'm, all, I'm, I'm glad you guys all got those Dr. Seuss. Um, you guys, not anyone listening to this show. Ran out and got your copies of um, uh, the racist ones. Um and it's really kind of remarkable how that can happen. I would love to know lifetime royalties off oh the boat. Very hungry caterpillar. <laughs> I mean, they're children's books, so they're not as expensive. But on the other hand, you sell that many okay. books that over that many weeks to Make that many people. Make up for that in volume. Make up for that in volume. That's right. <laughs> and then he had a career out, you know, that was bridged off very hungry caterpillar, like brown bear, brown bear. There were some other ones. And then there was merch and, you know, all the the stuff. There was stuffed animals of Very Hungry Caterpillar and calendars and art and just a whole other thing to go alongside of it. 
when I worked at Barnes and Noble, we would have character visits from popular children's books, which was just like Barnes and Noble owns a bunch of these costumes for popular <laughs> characters. And they have a road. This is like really this is how it went, at least 10 years ago. They have a rotation where it's like every store is going to get one every couple of months. And the, like it comes in a box and someone on staff gets to be that character that day. And the caterpillar would come, you know, and like Clifford would come. And it's that. Yeah popular and recognizable um that you know everybody knows the very hungry caterpillar and have for generations generations just so many generations of readers have encountered this and it's it's just interesting and timeless in that way and in talking about eric carl you know i don't have kids i've given this book certainly at baby showers until i realized like everyone is giving a copy of the very hungry caterpillar <laughs> baby showers so maybe pick something <laughs> the else. very overexposed caterpillar but right totally <laughs> um but the most interesting and like weird thing that i saw come out in the public conversation about his life and his work uh, after he passed away was there was this weird like I don't even know what to call it. It wasn't a hoax. But years ago, uh, some interviewer had created like a satirical interview with Eric Carle. And in the satirical interview, they make up Eric Carle telling some story, again, completely fabricated, of like an editor wanted the Very Hungry Caterpillar to experience consequences for overeating. Mm. And it was going to get a stomach ache and that Eric Carl regretted giving the Caterpillar a stomach ache because does that like ruin the joy of the story or something? And in the day after he died, this, you know, little image from of a screenshot of the interview was getting passed around and people being like look at this and look at this whole thing and then it turned out you know someone finally fact checked and realized this wasn't real but in the realizing that it wasn't real the way that that got spun around the internet was like that whole quote was a hoax (laughs) like that it feels so illustrative of the kind of internet moment that we're in right now we're like it wasn't a hoax like it was satire from the beginning and whoever started passing it around like when eric carl died and they went googling eric carl interview or eric carl quote did not realize that the thing that they had screenshot was a satire probably one simple google with a link and (laughs) found the original source right it got fact checked by the internet within a couple of hours um but it's a hoax because i've been hoovering up uncritically everything on my social media i've been hoodwinked you yeah you hoaxed yourself bro like that's (laughs) it was self-hoaxed it's the new self-pwned i guess guess Um, but was just interesting and weird to see that happen and it reminded me of this thing that does occur when an author or any public figure dies is people do go Googling for stuff to share. Like, what's a new thing that I can say about this person that nobody has tweeted yet? I was like, oh, um, first it'll be this weird interview quote and then it will be the hoax around it. And just like, I I think, you know, that's another piece of how big Eric Carl was yeah. is that like everyone knew who he was enough that you could make a satirical interview about a thing that never occurred with him. People would believe it and then say it was a hoax when it turned out that they just didn't know what satire was. It's, it's interesting too, because the very hungry caterpillar is just faint. It's like right on the meridian of fame or recognizability that it's especially susceptible to that because Eric Carl, I don't mm-hmm. think was much of a public figure, I don't think I'd be able to say one word about his actual personality and no one else would, as, as opposed to like a Stephen King or someone out sure. there or a Neil Gaiman or someone out there, you know, fact checking themselves or no, I didn't say that. Apparently there's another one of those that goes around. That's about um, Alan Rickman, who's dead about this quote about Harry Potter, about 
you know, something he supposedly said, but he actually never did, and it was somebody else. But it just has its second life, and I see it on memes all the, all the time, getting passed around. It's like, I don't know. You can't stamp this stuff out at some point. It's out there in the wild, and it just takes on a life of its own. I wonder, is it very hung outside of things that have had like major movie adaptations? Mm. Does it have the highest? Does the the caterpillar have the highest recognize, recognize recognizability quotient of 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 any sort of kids figure? Maybe any book figure because oh, you go to Seuss and you've got movies, mm-hmm. right? You've got Cat right. in the Hat and all that stuff. Multiple versions of it. You go much, I don't know, more obscure, and people don't know it. Like I wonder where a very hungry caterpillar would be on your flashcard to you know a, a random sampling of Americans. What percentage of them know? that that's the very hungry caterpillar, or at least recognize it at all. I think that would be an interesting hmm. um, kind of a situation. The one where certainly the, the creation was way more famous than Eric Carle, um, even at the same time. And you're right. It's not something, it's not like Shel Silverstein. We're going to come back to it as an adult. And like I didn't, you know, the, the light in the attic is still great. And it's kind of fun to read on its own terms, even when you're older, which I've done with my kids and enjoyed myself you and I aren't going to pick up the very hungry caterpillar for a little nostalgia fix. Like, yeah, I get it. There's like an apple mm-hmm. you can stick your finger through. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm all set for that kind of stuff. <laughs> so it also, you know, it's perpetually four years old, perpetually one yeah, year old. And- There's no coming back to it and seeing it with fresh eyes. And what a wonderful kind of a situation. It yeah. Is that's, too. I hadn't even thought about that because I, but I think that it exists for most of us who were exposed to it as kids as a thing that we just know we were exposed to, but don't even have memories yeah, of like right. the, the age at which your parents are reading you the very hungry caterpillar and you're doing the whole board book thing is not a time of life that most of us have active memories of as adults, which is also just kind of wild to think about that. Like you can recognize the very hungry caterpillar. If someone shows you a flashcard of it. And that's right. I, I love that question and think that most of us w- would, uh, that most people who came up in the American public education system <laughs> know yeah. who the very right. hungry caterpillar is and could recognize that, but only because it's so much a part of like the cultural water, not because we can even remember our own experiences with it, but like maybe by the time you were, six you were reading it to your sibling or a cousin or you Mm -hmm. saw a teacher had it in the classroom and I I can only think of you know like maybe where the wild things are is at that level yeah Dr. Seuss as you said Um, well as you know I don't think people actually like where the wild things are that's my contrarian take on that yeah (laughs) it's funny because it's it's very it's very bespoke for a certain age and there's a ceiling on the enjoyment of it now if you want to have a poster of the very hung like I think the art style transcends the actual like book reading experience it's kind of interesting and has a visual quality which makes it supremely recognizable I think a good hoax would be to publish and print like a thousand copies of something in the same art style called the very hungry caterpillar but with a completely different story and mm. like give that to people and say, is this the very <laughs> is hungry cat? Yeah. How much of it is this, you know, how much of this do you remember? And they'd be like, yeah, this is exactly what, it, because I wouldn't know. I mean, it, I it's too much. And I think it turns into a butterfly at the end. Like that's kind of the story. Maybe, maybe that's a hoax. I'm not sure. Um, but a remarkable con- contribution to the firmament of children's books. And I wonder what's going to be, do you just get to be that forever? Right, I, I don't think anyone's going to come cancel the very hungry caterpillar anytime soon. Um, mm. So, is this just it forever? Uh, hard, hard, hard nut to crack. Hard, hard company to keep. But if you get there, um, it pays dividends for a long, long time. 
Uh, all right. Then other news this week. We t- we t- Amazon bought MGM. Not that interested in it, except because there's a big back catalog. I think includes Wizard of Oz, which is a literary you know imp- yeah, a literary property as well. James Bond seems to be the biggest, the juiciest plum in that fruit basket that Amazon gets along with MGM. Bond has long since transcended uh, his origin as a literary figure, though I do quite like some of the less racist Ian Fleming books. Um, including Casino Royale, which I think is the best of the James Bond novels by Ian Fleming, if you want to go read that. And then actually Anthony Horowitz's later James Bond IP books are pretty good and maybe better than the original Ian Fleming stuff. But uh, I guess because it's Amazon, because it's related to Prime, because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does, um, speaking of Wizard of Oz, thinking about what Amazon's business model right now is, and why are they going to pay $9 billion for MGM? Right. Again, okay, the company's worth $1.5 trillion. They can must muster the scratch to do it. The other thing I think is most interesting to me is watching other, you know, sort of business kind of analysts who are as wrong as often as they are right say, well, this is to buttress Prime, and Prime is a moat. IP is a moat, because if you have James Bond, no one else gets to have James Bond where two-day shipping is something that other people can do. Now, it may take them some time, but Walmart and Target and a lot of places, um, as I've been diversifying away from Amazon ourselves in my household, have been surprised. It's been a while, I should say, that you know a lot, most of our mail-order stuff was Amazon. We buy stuff locally and other things in Targets and every place, but like in terms of buying stuff over mail, 90% of what we were buying was Amazon. And you know, as a lot of people have, like us, are saying, yeah, maybe that's not the best thing in the world going back to... Not even I'm not even talking about mom pa down the corner. I'm talking about other behemoths who couldn't compete with Prime even two or three years ago of two-day free shipping. And now almost everyone has it. And so the Prime value proposition is being, I don't know, it's com- being competed with because this is what happens. But you know what you can't compete with really is James Bond because they're the only purveyor of James Bond. Netflix is the only purveyor of Stranger Things. Disney is the only purveyor of Avengers. So if you're trying to fight Walmart, for example, for most people's, for, for the bulk of the mail order, online ordering dollar, I can join Walmart Plus and get two-day free shipping, or I can get Amazon Prime, which is two-day free shipping, plus Lord of the Rings coming out in the fall, plus James Bond. And that differentiator, it's so interesting how IP is sort of the last barrier in tech to just being technologically competed with. Because everything else is a matter of resources and scale. No amount of money is going to get you James Bond unless Amazon sells it to you. No amount of money is going to get you Harry Potter. No amount of money is going to get you Star Wars. And it's because of copyright, but also because of the power of story and the affinity people have with characters and franchises and IP over time. It's just interesting that it all comes back to people care about very hungry caterpillars of the world and the Dr. Seuss's of the world um, and the, I'm trying to th- the Pixar's of the world and things like that. And even these giant, you know, unbelievably huge, mind-bogglingly dominant tech players still need character and they still need story. At least, they, at least that's this particular thread of it. There could be a whole bunch of this. But I like this story about the thing that cannot be competed away is if someone has IP that people want. And it's interesting to watch. Just is. Yeah, I was really baffled by the first round of commentary around this, which was just, oh, but they want James Bond. And I remember like Bob and I having this conversation about like, okay, the James Bond, that's a big deal, but mm-hmm. also how is it possibly worth 
that much. Like, there's also, I think, 4,000 other films in yes. MGM. And yeah. that started making more sense to me. Like, okay, it's 4,000 films and like 17,000 TV shows. So all of those things, if Amazon has them, are things like how much of that MGM catalog is currently available on Netflix or currently available on Hulu that, you know, I would assume Amazon is going to revoke that status and just take I would it think Who knows what existing contracts so, are out there? I, that's yeah, I mean, like, know. who knows how that's going to go, but thinking then about like okay this, this is now 4,000 films and 17,000 TV shows that nobody else but Amazon can have they have not built out original content to near the extent that Netflix has you know I think at this point a lot of folks who joined Netflix way back in the day so that you could rent the movies you were familiar with or like watch the 14th season of Friends or whatever are now just as invested in Netflix original shows yeah. and and movies Amazon has not been successful in doing that to nearly the same degree that Netflix has. And so thinking about it then is like, well, there's competition on the shipping side and how else are we going to get people to continue paying for Prime if they can get their one day or two day shipping? They can get their dog food from any number right. of purveyors for next from day other for places. And not for nothing, the public conversation mm -hmm. around Amazon has really changed in tone. So there's not just like, man, I love Amazon. They deliver things to me in two days. That's not right. nearly the conversation, which it was, you know, that was more of the focus when Prime first launched and people were very excited about just the accessibility of, of quick shipping. So watching Amazon try to gather up other ways to strengthen the position of Prime against competitors both on the shipping side and the digital content side, I think is it's interesting. It's probably smart on, on Amazon's part. And it tells us something about where they perceive yeah. their vulnerabilities to be, which is also very interesting. Right. Um, so I guess we will see how that all shakes out. Yeah. In case you didn't know, Amazon already has the rights to the original Fleming books. Um, mm. So also putting a hat on the hat there a little bit too. Speaking of IP, um, speaking of curation, uh, Roxanne Gay, who we talked about as being probably in our top five draft picks for authors who could, should, would be interested in and could do something interesting with their own imprint. Um, she indeed has her own imprints with Grove Atlantic, going to do about three books a year. Um, a link in the show notes is always bookwrite.com slash listen. You can read the details there. If you know Roxanne, Roxanne Gay at all, you'll be not surprised to see the kind of books she's interested. They'll be in like Roxanne Gay adjacent kinds of things. Um, I guess... When we talked about you know which authors could, I don't think we got too much into the should or should is not right. Not like a moral or ethical should, but what's the value add for an author? Is an author enough of a better um, talent spotter, manuscript spotter than the people who do it all the time? Like what's the pixie dust that Roxane Gay is adding there? And that got us into a little bit of a conversation about Roxane Gay also as a literati um, vertical channel line subscription. Like literati is a book club club quotation marks where you can <laughs> sign up for a subscription and get the book in the mail with some commentary by the picker it could be malala could be steph curry these are real ones roxanne gay is out there atlas obscure another some websites are doing it now which i think is pretty interesting um so you get some commentary and then you get access to the app where apparently you can talk with other people who are also subscribed what your interaction is with the person who you've nominally signed up to get their book club experience from is a little unclear to me. I think one one or both of us might try one of these at some point and sort of take her out for a spin and see how it goes. But the 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 gate 
the the picker, the book picker is Gate. And you can go from all the way back from the early days of Book of the Month Club to like Lionel Chili and Jacques Barzun to Book of the Month Club in the heyday of mid-century when it picked Native Son in 1940 and basically made that book um, the It Book of 1940, I think, actually using mm-hmm. the same kind of um, b- parameters we're using before, which is now then sort of went away in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the book review became the arbiter uh, as much as anything to where we are today, which is a, I don't know, a much flatter influencer world, right? We kind of, the, 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 the beginning and the end of the big time influencer was Oprah. No one has matched Oprah at her peak. Not even, Reese now I think is the, um, I don't even think she's heir apparent. I think she's on the throne right now um, for the celebrity influencer, but there's all kinds of other people doing stuff here. Does that translate into directable book sales in a way where a Roxanne Gay, a Literati, um, as we said, Reese doesn't seem to be interested in her own imprint right now. Um, she'd rather take the, she'd rather buy the IP and make a movie out of it or a TV show. Um, how this is going to shake out, how far down, how many different, I guess, end gates will people be, pay attention to and matter? What are the business deals here? Is this like Substack where Literati is paying these people, you know, these early adopter kind of influencers, a, an unsustainable amount of money so that they will get a business and other people will come do other different kinds of things? And they are, you know, in a classic VC way, going to lose a lot of money with the hopes of making a lot of money because you're going to build up a client base and so on and so forth. I don't really know how this shakes out. I have to admit, and I throw this to you. I don't really see a bunch of micro subscriptions based on influencers. That doesn't feel like the future to me. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but there's something about that that doesn't feel like the future to me, Rebecca. I don't know what you think about that. That doesn't, it doesn't feel like the future to me either. I understand from the literati side, you know, they have a bajillion dollars in VC capital. Um, So why they would, I get why they would go like, pay a bunch of well-known people who have good followings. And I think, you know, Roxane Gay is a really interesting case there because she seems to have a very good understanding of what people who follow her are looking for and are interested in. And they are, then the audience is also kind of clear on what to expect from Roxane Gay, right? Like to go back to this imprint, it's going to be a a mix of fiction, nonfiction and memoir focusing on underrepresented voices. And she has gotten the publisher to agree to a minimum for advances. They have declined to say what the minimum will be, Mm. but she has talked openly about how her own first advance at Grove was for $12,500. And that is far too low. So presumably these minimums are higher than that. And that there's a certain kind of book you, if you follow Roxane Gay, there's a certain kind of book or subject matter that you expect her to be interested in and recommending to you. So we can kind of guess that those are the books that are going to make it into the imprint. Those are the books that are going to make it into her literati situation. I think it's the other folks who aren't uh, explicitly literary in their focuses and careers. And I'm counting Malala even among yeah. those. Like she has written a book, but she's not a literary figure. Steph Curry, very well known. People are really interested in him, a smart, interesting guy, but not a literary figure. So there's that first layer of like, oh, I'm interested in what Steph Curry might think. And he recommended this book. But like if you're not actually getting interaction with Steph Curry, you're just going to be in a chat room functionally, like with a bunch of other people who also like Steph Curry and maybe read the book that he recommended. And 
where does it go from there? I don't I don't see how that becomes like the future where people are making their reading decisions. And we know like from the Pew Center's research that a heavy reader reads 10 to 12 books a mm-hmm. year. Like in the American public, that's heavy reading. And it's hard for me to imagine that the average heavy reader in that sense is going to make a bunch of their annual reading decisions or, or by default, give their annual reading decisions to a celebrity once a month or once a quarter rather than also what their book club is reading, what their friends recommended. I think I understand why a you know well-financed situation like Literati would try this, and I don't see a big long-term path mm-hmm. for it. I also think like that for the Roxanne Gay imprint, this is just about Roxy and Gay having the ability to choose good books and be a good curator of things. Mm. And not all authors, like being a good writer is not the same thing as having a good sensibility for what else people are interested in and what will sell. But I do think Roxy and Gay is plugged in in a way that will make her more likely to be able to do this. And in the same way that like the Oprah imprint for Flatiron, those are not really being marketed as Oprah books. These are just good books that... Oprah has selected and they're having tons of marketing dollars behind them. And those authors show up getting interviewed by Oprah and sort of in that same cadre of writers, which is what we're seeing happen with the Ashley Ford book. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's people aren't walking into their independent bookstores going, what's the latest book from the Oprah imprint? And I don't think that anyone will be or that very many people will be going, tell me the latest book from the Roxy and Gay imprint. But if she's selecting books that are going to land in this sort of space of public consciousness and get some get good advances, get some marketing dollars behind them. I think it's her name being attached to it is secondary. It's about that sensibility that she'll be bringing and then what else the publishing house can do um, to make those books be recognized. Cause we like, we can barely pay attention to imprints and we get paid mm-hmm. to do this. Most readers just do not care who the editor was, who selected that book to get published. No, interestingly that as little as you might know the name, you know the editors even less. And we know a few mm-hmm. that we pay attention to a little bit, but beyond that, it's, it's very difficult. I guess I've just never seen, even going back to like the Sarah Jessica Parkers and the Anthony Bourdains and the others that go, like, does the, does the intervention on, the, on behalf or from a celebrity author, whatever, who's sort of outside the imprint's inner workings matter? Like if you look at a spreadsheet of sales, could you pick out the ones? Would it oh. show up? You know, is there, if you do the regression analysis of like, so what are we actually doing here? Is this part of Grove keeping Roxanne on their role? It could be a negotiating thing for all I know. I, I just am so interested in what is the full spectrum of value here about how this is happening? Because yeah. theoretically, they Grove publishes Roxanne Gay, so they publish books like Roxanne Gay because they published Roxanne Gay. What are they getting that they aren't going to get otherwise. Well, like Roxanne's like, you know, guys, you should really publish this book. And like, oh yeah, you're right. I wasn't going to think about it. It seems like a I weird, think, it seems like a strange thing to imagine happening. I think it's maybe a way for them to disrupt their own pipelines yeah, or a, yeah. a, a tertiary solution to the pipeline issue of how still homogenous publishing remains, especially at the higher ranks of being an acquiring editor that if you don't have you know junior editors on staff that are curating this kind of stuff you get both the new shiny of a celebrity writer kind of name coming to it and then you get an editorial sensibility that you don't already have in-house which is interesting because somebody over there has the editorial sensibility to acquire Roxanne Gay but you need more than one of those people you know you you need multiples and 
it, I think it is very, it's a very interesting and open question of is there actually additional value to a publisher over, say, just Sally Q editor acquiring right. the same titles that Roxane Gay would have acquired and, and marketing them in the exact same way. And I would suspect that's pretty minimal. You'll get whatever little boost you get because Roxane Gay tweets about the books that come out on her imprint when they come out. But knowing what we know about like conversion rates for online retail and just about the competitive marketplace of getting people to pay attention to things like still a very small percentage of hers or anyone's followers is going right. to pick up a book that they recommend. Yeah, because and- not every book that Reese picks breaks out. Some do, right. you know, some do, some don't. You know, I'd be f- there, there's very few like publishing conversations I would love to hear. I mean, there are some. One I would mm. love to hear is and say, let's fast forward three years, and there's been 10 Roxanne Gay books co- that have been published. Which of those books would Grove Atlantic passed on if not for this? And then that why would be a fascinating, like what did Roxanne Gay see? What did Grove Atlantic not see? Did it work out? Like, I think this is, and, and this is not just about Roxanne Gay. This is about, this was, we had the same conversation around Sarah Jessica Parker when that, mm-hmm. and is that, does it exist anymore? Do we know? I think that tells you something no right now, right? <laughs> yeah. Could you name one? I think I remember there was one at the beginning I was interested in. Uh, I can picture the cover of the first yeah, one. Yeah, I can sort of too. But that's all I've got. And Sarah Jessica Parker now, again, she's at a different point in her career. Maybe we're, we're doing more Sex in the City, apparently, so maybe that comes back around. Roxanne Gay is more influential among a certain kind of reader. I, I think I'd include myself in that reader. I'd pay much more attention to Roxanne Gay says about a book than Sarah Jessica Parker. On the other hand, mm-hmm. Sarah Jessica Parker is a different kind of famous, it's just, just on a different scale. What does that mean? I'm not really sure. I find that... I find the whole thing so interesting. I assume these people know what they're doing and they have some reasons for doing it. It's less clear to me. I can see from Roxanne Gay's point of view, you know, I get to pick some books. I get to talk about some books, have some influence there in addition to my writing. I'm guessing she's not going to be doing the the line production kind of work of like, you know, copy editing. And is she going to be in on the cover design and marketing plan stuff like they would at a normal imprint? Be fascinated to know the whole thing because it, you can hear my conflict about it. On one side, I think this makes a lot of sense, and I've said it makes a lot of sense. And right, but like how that actually how that actually plays out has a wide variety of permutations, and which permutations exist and which ones work better than not um, is pretty interesting. All right, we're going to take another break and uh, do some. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Eight 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 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. More news. Um, let's do a couple of news, quick newsy things real quick. Uh, we saw the She Said movie, which is about the, um, I guess, the first foray into the Harvey Weinstein investigation, which cracks, which really cracked the nut of mm-hmm. Me Too. And it's, 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 it, it feels like so much a part of culture now that it's hard to remember that like four years ago, we didn't know what the hashtag Me Too meant. Isn't that wild, Rebecca? Like, yeah. I can't believe that. I, I, I'm so shocked about the speed and power. Um, and there's still work to be done. We're still finding about a bunch of stuff in sports, especially we're seeing that mm-hmm. uh, is coming out. Um, but when this book came out, we both read it. We both really liked it. And I think we said at the time, we hoped it got a really good treatment because it could be, you know, in the lineage of all the president's men or Spotlight or The Post or um, any any of the great journalistic work. Um, and while there are women in many of those works, women aren't centered in either of them, either as the subject, frankly, or as the reporters. And this one does. Zoe Kazan and Carrie Mulligan um, are going to play the two lead reporters. Fascinating to see if they get Gwyneth to play Gwyneth That's here. That's just <laughs> going to say is there are so many famous people yes. involved in this because so much of the reporting was them trying to get these actresses who are either super well-known or who maybe would have been super well-known if Harvey Weinstein hadn't ruined their careers mm-hmm. to go on the record and like and at one point they have to like get a bunch of them in a room together so yeah. that they can talk about it and sort of get on the same page about who's going public and who's not and it's hard to imagine trying to cast like who are you going to cast to play Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> I can't I'm sure people knew mo- mo- movies better than I do out there have there been movie you know narrative features where and they're based on true events that feature other people in Hollywood and how do people handle that I've never seen that before the only one I could think of right now it also is sort of about journalism because of Michael Lewis book but it's not in is in Moneyball where Billy Bean's a real person and like they're playing real people that are contemporaneous, but they're not actors. Right. right? They're not actors. And people didn't know what um, Art Howe looked like, Philip Seymour Hoffman. People didn't know what Billy Bean was. The real Billy Bean wasn't going to show up and play himself. Especially not if you're like, it's either you or Pitt. You're like, okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You definitely let them (laughs) get out of there to play you. (laughs) And and clear the, clear the, uh, clear the room for the golden boy of Missouri. Um, and like, who's going to play Harvey Weinstein? How do you even conduct auditions for that situation? <laughs> I've got good news be... for you, Brendan Gleeson. There's a big move. There's a big role. Well, Gleeson just played Trump. 
So if you're going to do that, mm. you probably are all right playing um, yeah. a wine scene I mean, there. It's going to be fascinating to see how it gets made. I'm really, really glad for it. Yeah. And I mean, that the combination of She Said and then Ronan Farrow's book about the reporting of it, it is truly unbelievable. You know, truth is stranger than fiction kinds yeah. of stuff that happens to them. I should say and, the, the, the two, um, the women who wrote the book, did the reporting, Jody Cantor and Megan Two. I don't want to blow over them. This is a piece in The Hollywood Reporter, reported by Pat Saperstein. My only sadness, the only, it's not a sadness. My 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 wish list for this was that it was more of a limited series than a movie, just because I mm. I like this kind of thing. I, I want all the details and some stuff is it plays out over time. This plays, I think that this maybe plays out over a much longer time than Spotlight and All the Presence Men. I feel like it's over several years, which is not necessarily the case with either of those. Though my my timeline's a little hazy, so that kind of longer time. Luxur- I want to luxuriate in six fifty-minute episodes of She Said myself but uh i really second looking that emotion to, i'm really looking forward to that. i just want more that's all i'm saying i'm greedy what do you want me to say well there is so much to the story and i think you know people who followed it like in 2017 nothing was bigger than the breaking of that and then that no. sort of daily update of who else had been outed as me too and i think we've forgotten because so many things have happened in the last four years what that felt like in the initial breaking of there was there was news every day there were new names on that list every day of people mostly men who were being revealed to have years or decades of abuse of power and of sexual assault and harassment patterns and to try to capture all of that like if anybody can capture it in a two-hour movie it's the team who's working on this but to try to capture all of that and then the cultural significance of it i think a netflix you know six or eight episode situation would have been or like hbo would have Mm -hmm. been fascinating because you then could have done some flashbacks and some flash forwards like some moments that jump into you know 2019 and, and show where things are um would have and who knows what they're going to do i think it'll be fascinating to see I think it this will be, too. be portrayed but i remember listening to it and just driving around with my jaw on the floor of you know the kinds of moments that megan Tui and jody Cantor encountered and the kinds of obstacles and the threats that they received and mm-hmm. all of it is part and parcel for what you would expect from a guy like we know harvey weinstein to be now but also still just deeply unbelievable yeah so looking forward to that um Another, you want to talk about We Need Diverse Books? I'll yeah. throw it to you for this one real quick. Yeah, I want to let our listeners know about this. If you haven't heard about it yet, if you've been following We Need Diverse Books and the use of the term own voices, which was coined in 2015 by an author named Corinne Davis. She was using it on Twitter as a casual, like shorthand way for readers to recommend books by authors who openly shared the same diverse identity that their characters had. So that would be like, this is a story about a Korean American kid and it's written by a Korean American author, or this is a story about an autistic kid and it's written by an autistic author. Um, Corinne Davis, of course, never intended the hashtag to be used in any kind of broader capacity, but it resonated with what readers were looking for at the time as a way to say, are the stories that are being told about, say, disabled people um, coming from members of the disabled community, or are they being told by other people who have varying levels of familiarity and responsibility in how they're telling those stories. And as it expanded to readers using this in a more robust way, publishing co-opted it and it has become 
a catch-all marketing term used by the publishing industry. And like when I say catch-all, I mean truly catch-all. Like We Need Diverse Books calls this out, that this is the reason they are going to stop using the term own voices. Um, they're going to go for specific language that authors want to use to celebrate about themselves and their characters because publishing's use of own voices has functionally made the term meaningless. Like this is a tennis book by an own voices author, as in like the author plays tennis on Saturdays. And that is not the intended purpose of own voices. It's supposed to be about, this is a story about some kind of marginalized experience and it's being told by an author who lives and shares that marginalized experience. And so that's about, you know, prioritizing stories from within marginalized communities and elevating voices from within those communities rather than just allowing um, anybody to tell those stories and be spotlighted. You want to prioritize the voices coming out of those communities. Mm. But publishing really has taken this and run with it in a harmful and I think often thoughtless um, way. I've, I've spent the last couple of years, anybody who receives publishing um, like PR announcements has seen this be used in all kinds of ways, many of them are of which are not in alignment with the term's intent. So we need diverse books is no longer going to use the term, um, which is like this falls into the category for me of like, this is why we can't have nice things mm. of um, publishing, taking something that's a useful thing for readers and attempting to make it into a way they can sell readers things. Um, and as you mentioned, when we talked about this, the first time we tried to record <laughs> this show, this is part of what led to some of what happened around American Dirt right. was the book being marketed as own voices because it was an immigrant story and the author could say, and my husband is an immigrant, even though the book is about the Latinx immigrant experience and her husband is Irish. These are clearly not the same thing. Right. Uh, but that kind of distinction was not being made clearly in the marketing. Um, publishers will send emails that say, you know, this is a blah, blah, blah book by an own voices author, but they don't explain what that own voices part means. How is the author actually connected? Um, so We Need Diverse Books is pushing then for their own language to just align the description of character and story with the language that the author chooses to use about themselves. This also puts some agency back into authors where it belongs being able to share or not share what they feel comfortable with about their own identities and experiences rather than being pushed to out themselves there have been some uh, pretty well known or like cases that have sort of blown up of authors who have like written queer stories being pushed on like yeah but are you an own voices writer for a queer story like maybe they didn't want to be out but they are being pushed to to, to get out um, if they want their story to be perceived that way. Um, so I, I'm glad to see We, Na we Need Diverse Books addressing this. Um, it's prompted some interesting conversations among Book Riot's editorial as well about mm. how do we meet the need that readers are coming to us with of wanting to find books about marginalized experience and from marginalized people um, without using the shorthand what else can we do to continue meeting this reader need while not feeding into publishing's overuse and watering down mm -hmm. of the term um and the longer that i've thought about it the more i've really landed in the place of like i, I don't know that there's like 
reparation to be done about what own voices means right now. I think WNDB is right to just, you know, we're going to stop using this term, we're going to use more specific language and move forward. But it's made me think about the fact that there will be another thing, you know, like before there was own voices all over PR pitches for books, there was like, this is the me too of this thing. This is the me too of this other thing. And there will be another one. Uber for me and, too. Yeah. That right. Kind of a, yeah. The, exactly. That for folks who work in book marketing, I hope that this is part of the ongoing and growing discussions about what representation and inclusivity means that like we do want more diverse books we and we do need to market those books um but some mindfulness and intention around recognizing a term that readers are using to recommend these books to each other and then if you're going to take it into your marketing making sure that you're using that term in the way that it was intended to be used so that it's telling readers what they think they're being told when they see that term and allowing it to maintain its utility because this turning something into a catch-all marketing term that just gets overused ultimately means that term means nothing to the reader that you're trying to serve and that you're tr ultimately you're trying to sell books to that person hopefully books that do the thing that they want them to be doing um, so that's my I think that's my hope for this. Maybe mm -hmm. this is a growth moment. Maybe we can keep the next nice thing that we have, the next like useful hashtag that a reader comes up with um, that helps us recommend books to each other. Maybe publishing can take a step back on how are we going to deploy this? Should we even use it at all? I think well, is a I great think that's question. The, that's the question. It's like if it's something that can be hashtag about, hashtagged or sloganized, look at the thing underneath the thing and not that mm -hmm. thing. That is actually like how, how can you be a participant in the underlying motivation for it rather than just noticing the banner and saying, Hey, I can, I can, I can carry a flag. Why don't we do that as well? Um, we gotta do one more sponsor break and come back to maybe one of my favorite stories of all time that we've covered on the show. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by the one that got away with murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, this also was a couple weeks ago. Um, I was on Memorial Day duty for uh, our, our daily Today in Books newsletter, and this came across a transom as I was looking for book news, where apparently there is an unpublished novel by John Steinbeck, 
um, in the uh, Michener Archive at the University of Texas. Talk about one of the great strongholds of literary treasures. There's like these couple of these places. There's like, you know, you can go to Oxford, you can go to Egypt, you know, you can go to all these places where there's like cultural treasures. If you don't know that the University of Texas at Austin has spent like the last 30 years buying up archives of like basically almost every major American writer, you should know that. I'm going to go there someday and see what's all there, including reading John Steinbeck's unpublished <laughs> werewolf novel. That's right. <laughs> One of the first three novels John Steinbeck wrote before he actually became John Steinbeck and got off and running as a literary person. One of them was a werewolf novel, and it still exists. It's in the archives. The other two novels that were unpublished in this period of his life, John Steinbeck himself destroyed. The estate is saying, you know, we don't want to capitalize on it. Steinbeck didn't do it in his life. I say release it, you cowards. He saved it. He told you everything he needs to know. I'm dead now, and I kept it. Please, please publish this, because I don't know what a giant Steinbeck werewolf novel looks like. Apparently, it's on some seaside village, and there's like a cub reporter and an unreliable whatever. It sounds like a Stephen King book written by John Steinbeck in 19, like, 21, like, 26. (laughs) Like, I've never heard of anything like this. Like, I don't know the history of the genre stuff well enough to know, like, I did some work when I was a you know more of an academic than I am now, which is none, um, about this era in American literature. And I know quite a bit about Steinbeck, and I don't think I ever knew this. And what tradition this is coming out of? Is it any good? Let it out there. I mean, worst case, please don't destroy it. Please someone get there with a Xerox machine surreptitiously <laughs> and make sure we copy this. Because I need to at least wait for public domain in 2033. I've done the math. I think that's right at this point where we can get our hands on this. This isn't a ghost at a watchman thing where someone's presenting it as like, this is the first novel. Tell it, just give us the introduction and say, this is just what it is. And just give it to us because I really need to see this. And part of this is fun and winking on me. And the most of it is not, though, because I really need to see what this book's look like. Yeah, I'm just dying to know what this book is like as well. And I'm usually team respect the author's wishes like they're usually I'm going there are plenty books Mm -hmm. in the world it's going to be fine if we never get to see the thing that John Steinbeck didn't want us to ever see but like we we were talking about a Nobel Prize winning author whose work is seen as having shaped American literature and he also had a werewolf novel in the bottom drawer like just let us answer that question also it won't ruin John Steinbeck's legacy. You can't take the Nobel away. No. You can't take away anybody's good memories of the Grapes of Wrath. I don't know if there's anybody who deeply loves the Grapes of Wrath, but you know, like that's, his legacy is firmly established. And now if we're just talking about like adding color to what were John Steinbeck's multitudes that he contained, that dude also wrote a werewolf novel. It's and one of the first things. Like this, yeah. he didn't lead off with Okies and, and Jalopies. Like the werewolf right. came what's first. The, what's the evolution here? This is a, a master's thesis that wants to be written. Oh How did God. Steinbeck go from the full moon yeah. to the, you know, dust bowl situation? Um, it need, This needs to see the light of day. Anyway, it just really You does. can read uh, links to this uh, piece in The Guardian reported by uh, Dahlia Alberge. Uh, Alberger, I don't know how you say that. It's not only uh, it's not only the Guardian and maybe French that. So I'm double mispronouncing it there. But you can find the reporting done there, um, and also one of the classic like late Steinbeck, where he's like, "Oh wait, cardigans and uh, Scot- Scottish sweaters, cable knit, 
and a cigar. Hemingway had a good idea. I'm it's, just going to do that now. Yeah, it's very like we want to maintain his dignity while we're outing him as having written a werewolf novel. So let's put a very distinguished author photo up here. Yeah, and there's like a Picasso print in the background. It's like, okay, just I see what you're casual. doing, Steinbeck. He's, you know what he's looking into the distance about? How am I going to publish this damn werewolf novel? Where can I put this? Murder at Full Moon. Podcast at BookRiot.com. Rebecca, talk to you later. Have a good one. 